So we take a limousine out to Matsushita, and as we were driving, we passed a McDonald's, and Paul asked the driver <laughs> to pull over because Paul liked McDonald's. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 14 years, 500 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. An interesting week for me. I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers, as many of my listeners know, and the owner of the Portland Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks passed away this week. Paul Allen died at the age of 65. Gone far too soon, but leaves quite a legacy. Uh, a few years back, I was able to sit down with Paul Allen for a rare interview, which you'll hear in a minute. But, uh, you know, most of his interviews he did via email. He was a very private person, didn't like interacting with people in person very much, especially the media. So uh, as someone who w- had worked for him, had a little bit of a relationship with him, I was able to score an in-person interview with him. And you'll even hear him talk in the end of the interview about the legacy that he hoped to leave. And I think he did leave exactly the type of legacy that he wanted to leave. The other person who's going to join me on this week's show is Marshall Glickman, the founder and CEO of G2 Strategic, but he's also the former president of the NBA's Portland Trail Blazers. He worked very closely with Paul Allen had an inside access to Paul, has some great stories to share about Paul Allen and gives a really good overview of the man as a business person, as a visionary, uh, has some stories about his family and, and just some really good anecdotes. So I encourage you to listen to this edition of Sports Business Radio. But right now, my interview with the late Paul Allen. My guest is Paul Allen. He's the chairman of the NBA's Portland Trailblazers and the NFL's Seattle Seahawks. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. A lot of versions of the story of how you bought the Trailblazers back in 1988 from Larry Weinberg. I've never heard the true story. Can you take us back to 1988? I'm sure it was an exciting time and how you came to acquire the Blazers. Uh, well, I was on the, the board of a software distribution company and... Uh, it was uh, around the time that the uh, the Sonics won the NBA championship, and so I became a fan of the the Sonics. And um, I think I was probably talking about how much I loved NBA basketball to to another board member, and he said, "Well, I, I think that the uh, the current owner of the Trailblazers might be interested in selling." Um, so we got in touch, and it was a long that was a long negotiation. I think it was over uh, at least over a six month period, uh, and even involved in looking at an X ray of. Uh, Sam Bowie's uh, leg, which had a bunch of screws in it, because uh, we had to decide whether we were going to keep uh, Sam as a member of, or if the previous ownership was going to was going to resolve his uh, contract issues and, and let him go. So that was a that was a long process, but I was so incredibly uh, excited to be an NBA owner. And then, fortuitously, through uh, through our draft back to, uh, back then, we got Buck Williams added to our nucleus of, of 
Clyde Drexler and Terry Potter, Jerome Kersey, Kevin Duckworth. Anyway, it all we ended up, uh, you know, Buck became the power forward of that team, and then we were off to the races and ended up being the finals twice. So that was that was an exciting time for me. A lot of success, a lot of excitement, and then in 1997, you became one of the the rare people out there that owned two professional sports teams. Uh, you bought the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, really, a lot of people think you saved football in Seattle. Talk about owning two sports teams. Well, uh, you know, it's it's the leagues, um, the way the leagues function, and the the games are obviously are are there similarities and different differences. Um, I think what's being an owner of a franchise in any city is if uh, you have some success and the whole city gets behind the team and 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 you and you end up going to the the championship. And I've been fortunate to have that happen twice here in in Portland and once in Seattle. And what an unbelievable. Uh, feeling that is, um, you know, both for the the players and, and for all the fans and for the city itself. So uh, that's been really rewarding for me. It, it's true that you know I was asked by some political uh, people and and, uh, and and people in the community up in Seattle to, to look at owning the at the Seahawks. We went through a process. We're able to have a, a referendum to get a new stadium built. Uh, that all worked out, and uh, it's 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 really been exciting to be involved with two franchises. Do you have any desire to be involved with another franchise, uh, maybe soccer in Europe or anything along those lines? Well, I mean, if you, if you combine the number of, of NBA games and, and, and football games, you're, you're approaching, you're approaching, you know, you're with playoff games in there, you're approaching a hundred games a year. That's plenty for me. And there's been some kind of unusual, uh, rumors out there. I've, I've looked at soccer teams, but I, but, uh, I haven't. I haven't looked at a single, uh, soccer team. So there's no truth to those rumors. You know, you've really done an amazing job of assembling uh, an impressive staff, not only in Seattle with Tim Ruskell and Mike Holmgren, but here in Portland with Kevin Pritchard and Nate McMillan. Talk about your interaction with those staffs, if you would. Well, I think, uh, you know, you have to be very careful um, when you pick uh, your people that do talent evaluation and run uh, the sports side of your franchise. And uh, I think in Kevin and Tim Ruskell, um, you know, some, some people have a, have a great talent in evaluating players and seeing how talented they are, but they, all, they also try to instill a certain culture. They have an approach that they, uh, and a goal in terms of the way the franchise, uh, works, the, the, the character of the players and all that. Both Tim and Kevin have that, have that characteristic. So you gotta be very careful as a, as a franchise owner to, to bring in people like that. And then in terms of, um, the management of the teams, uh, the financial management, Todd, Todd Lewicki, and and we're making an announcement here today. I think we've we're, we've got some really great caliber people managing the business side uh, that you know that that way and and delivering a great experience for the fans. So um, so all of those things are key ingredients to get your franchise firing on all cylinders. And, and fortunately, I think we're we're uh, in, we've been in great shape in Seattle for the last few years, and and now we're I hope we're reaching the culmination of doing that in Portland. Yeah, what a difference a year makes. Uh, a year ago, we talked about broken economic models. Today, you've got the Rose Garden back. Super excited here in Portland. Talk about the range of emotions that you've had in the last 12 months. I imagine it's pretty wide. Exactly. No, I mean, a year ago, I um, I told um, some of the media here that, uh, you know, they, they shouldn't draw any conclusion from the fact that I was here for the draft, uh, that, that I might not end up owning the, the franchise, uh, that I might end up... Uh, selling it, but we had a great draft. Uh, we were able to do some, uh, uh, things to, to eventually get the Rose Garden back. So our, we're a much firmer financial footing. Uh, hopefully the Rose Garden will, will fill back up here with, you know, with our having the, 
amazing uh, luck to get the first pick in the draft, and, and a draft that has a couple of, uh, at least a couple of very, very unusually talented players in it. So we're evaluating both of those this week. So it's been a, it's been an amazing turnaround uh, from the time before the draft a year ago. So basically, to, you know, the draft was a was a kind of a harbinger that we had a year ago. Was a, was a harbinger of things to come. I just want to ask you a few more questions. Um, you are involved in a variety of different projects. I think they're amazing. I think you're one of the most diverse people on this planet. Um, anything from the, the Brain Institute to your space programs, what a legacy you're leaving. What's the criteria you look for to fund a project and become so passionate about a project you're involved with? Well, I think you look for something that, you know, that can affect, uh, I mean, if you're looking at things in, in science or uh, research or, you know, products like, like we did at, at at Microsoft and some of the, the web-related things we're doing now, you look for something that's going to have a positive effect uh, on the world and people are going to want to use, and, and there's, a, there's an economic model there that works. Um, so, uh, so I've been fortunate to be able, and then of course I do some philanthropic things too, so I've been fortunate to be able to um, have a bunch of opportunities to do many different things, and that's, what I, that's really what I like. I like a, uh, probably a more diverse set of, of different enterprises than, than most people do, but I think it's uh, incredibly fun. And obviously sports franchises, you, you know, like any sports franchise goes through up years and, and down years, and, and uh, when you're in a down year, you got to tough it out, but when you're on the upswing and things are going um, in a positive direction and you're having success, you got to savor those too. So I, I feel like I've been fortunate to have been involved with two franchises that, that have had uh, a history of success. Last question, uh, like we just discussed, you're going to leave an amazing legacy on this planet. You fought Hodgkin's disease. You probably have a, a better appreciation for life than, than maybe some of us. When it's all said and done, what's the legacy that, that Paul Allen wants to leave? Well, I, you know, I, again, I think, you know, you, you know, you just, you just try to, um, create things or look for opportunities to do things, um, for the world at large that, that are going to make the world a better place. And I, and I certainly think, uh, the things I've done, you know, in technology, some of my philanthropic things, um, that's been true. And I, I hope as, as a, as an owner of a sports franchise, um, you, you want to do something that, that the, the community, you know, it, have a franchise that the community can feel extremely proud of. You can have a, a winning tradition, um, and and it just. It, but personally, of course, it's just so exciting to be involved with a team that's 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 doing well. And, and as as I said before, is on the upswing. So it's it's a mix of those a mix of those things. And uh, I, I just feel very fortunate to uh, to be in the position to have been in the position to to have such a wide range of interest and and be able to do such positive things. There's many people out there that are looking to invest, but they don't know how. It can be a little bit intimidating. That's why I want to tell you about Robinhood. It's an amazing investment app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, and it's all commission-free. Griggs, I love this app because I can look at my stock portfolio. It's got all kinds of great charts and information on the stocks, but it's also a low entry point. It's not intimidating. You don't have to get your broker on the phone. It's super easy to use, and you can do it all from your phone. Look, that's the cool part. I mean, back in the day, you had to look at the newspaper. What's my stock doing today? You know, how do I invest with this thing? Who do I need to call? You can do it right here. It's all in this app. It's simple to use. Uh, like you said, you don't have to deal with brokers. I mean, you can do it at midnight. You can do it at 2 a.m. Whenever you want to. It's just right there. It's really easy to use. I love it. If you've had a money manager, you got to get your money manager on the phone. Or, you know, the thing I think most people don't like is the commissions that are associated with 
your stock trades. Robinhood doesn't have any of that. Robinhood is giving our listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at sbradio.robinhood.com. That's sbradio.robinhood.com. Great app to use. Highly recommend it. Great way for young people to stick their toe in the water on the stock market. Or if you're just sick and tired of paying commission fees, this is a great alternative. Go to sbradio.robinhood.com, sbradio.robinhood.com today. My guest is Marshall Glickman. He is the founder and CEO of G2 Strategic. You can find them online at g2strategic.net. Marshall is the former president of the NBA's Portland Trailblazers and its affiliated companies, including the Oregon Arena Project. He oversaw the development of the $262 million Rose Quarter District, including the Rose Garden, which is now the Moda Center, a 21,000-seat multi-purpose indoor arena. I can say that Marshall Glickman gave me my start in the sports business. He hired me as a young, fresh-faced intern of the Portland Trailblazers. We've been friends for a long time. Marshall, how are you? Great, Brian. How are you this morning? Good. I wanted to have you on because you have such a unique perspective with Paul Allen. And obviously, the big news in the sports world this week is that Paul Allen passed away at the age of 65 His Hodgkin's lymphoma returned. He announced two weeks ago that it had returned and it took him quickly. For someone like you who was in his inner circle, you were in meetings with him, you were on his yacht, you spent a lot of time with Paul Allen. Just start off with your general thoughts of Paul Allen. Describe him to us for people who've never met him. Brilliant guy, uh, deep thinker, um, challenging. He would ask questions that, you know, you. I, I, I would go into meetings with him thinking I was very well prepared to handle anything that might come up, but <laughs> Paul had a way of coming up with questions I hadn't thought of in advance. Uh, so he certainly kept me on my toes. So brilliant guy uh, in that sense, uh, very passionate, uh, obviously um, really a hoops junkie, I would say. Um, just, I think he got into this because he just had a passion for hoops. I know he tried to buy the Sonics uh, earlier, uh, and that didn't work out, so uh, the Blazers were a great opportunity for him. Uh, so just to, you know, obviously to be around somebody who really changed the world was a fascinating experience, and I honestly think at the time I may not have appreciated it as much as I do today. So he was 35 years old back in 1988 when he bought the Trailblazers. What was your first interaction with him? Well, (laughs) I'm not sure I remember. (laughs) Um, It's a long time ago, I know. Brian, that's a big challenge. Um, there was I, I, I there were several several interactions I you know I was a very young executive who had I had just returned to Portland um, I had been at the league office at the NBA in uh, from eighty six to eighty eight and John Spolstra who was our senior VP at the time uh, who I considered to be one of the great marketing minds in the business and still do to this day. John had convinced me I should come back to Portland 
um, after spending a couple years at the league because the Blazers were actually, you know, a very mature business, uh, particularly on the radio and television side. And John needed somebody who would think about growth. How are we going to grow every day? So I had just gotten back to the Trailblazers. And it was only a couple of months after that, I got a heads up from my father that Larry Weinberg was going to sell the club. But nobody knew about that. And the transaction um, actually concluded not too many days after my father revealed that to me. So I think, you know, he didn't tell me for quite a while. Um, And so when Larry sold the team uh, and Paul came in and uh, introduced us to his sidekick, Burt Kolb, I think a lot of us who had been around for a while assumed that we were going to lose our jobs, to be honest. No offense to Paul or anybody else, but that's pretty typical when there's an ownership change. Um, but actually, uh, Paul liked being around people with, you you know, younger people with a lot of enthusiasm um, and, and vision. And I think I brought that to the table along with Jeff Petrie and Ken Bartell at the time, who had been the GM at KX Radio. And we were actually, they did not come in and make any uh, major staff changes at all. Uh, and, the, and, you know, so it was kind of a, a sigh of relief, I guess. But in fact, uh, I was promoted uh, to senior vice president at a very uh, young age. And so I think my first interaction was p- with Paul was just, you know, kind of a get to know you meeting. Uh, and most of my interactions going forward were with Burt Cold, although over the course of the time that we were developing the Rose Garden, I spent considerable time uh, directly with Paul as well. So let's dig in on that a little bit, because obviously I was there as well when the Rose Garden was being built, now the Moda Center. And, you know, it seems like Paul and certainly you had a certain vision for the arena. But to take people back to that time, you had been playing, the Blazers had been playing Memorial Coliseum for a number of years. It didn't have any of the modern amenities. The sellout streak was... You know, no end in sight. So there was a demand for a more modern venue with more seats, but it wasn't an easy process getting that deal done. How did you work with Paul Allen and obviously the city of Portland to get that done? Because, Marshall, I remember being in a meeting where you walked in and it was like the city's not playing ball and we may not be long for Portland. So you and Paul deserve a lot of credit for getting that deal done. Or I don't know that the Blazers would be in Portland today. Oh, Brian, I was just trying to scare you. (laughs) I don't think there was ever really a threat of moving, to be frank with you. Look, um, what happened is uh, my father and I, um, you know, my father was winding down his role, but was still playing a significant role. Uh, I was a senior vice president at the time, and um, John Spolstra had just left. So at this point, myself, and uh, Jeff Petrie really ran the Trailblazers um, with Harry uh, still in the role of president, but certainly, you know, with the understanding that he was he was winding down. So we went up to Seattle and, and probably this was the first, you know, serious meeting with Paul. And we went to Seattle uh, and explained to Paul that we were in the second smallest market 
in the NBA. I believe we were number two in 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 in, in small size, um, and I think we were in the had the fourth smallest capacity. And at that point, we had achieved, I think, in the 600s consecutive sellouts, and we had a very big waiting list. So it was difficult. It was a tough ticket. You know, the Coliseum, when you say modern amenities, the truth is, Brian, back then, there were some new arenas being built. Milwaukee at the time. Uh, Cleveland. Phoenix. With Cleveland. Phoenix was the one that was the most uh, considered to be, the, you know, the new reference. Uh, what, what is it called now? Um, what's the name of the it's Talking Stick Arena? Right. I think is what it's called. But um, And so, you know, we, uh, my father was pretty friendly with Jerry Colangelo, and Jerry was talking up how great this was and how important it was to the bottom line. So we went to Paul, and we made, you know, without any deep analysis, we simply explained to him, the facts and said this is a way that we could grow the franchise and secure its long-term future in Portland and its economic viability. And it didn't take him very long to agree um, that that was the approach we should take. Uh, What took me by complete shock, frankly, at the time is he pointed to me and said, make it happen. (laughs) <laughs> and I will be, a little bit of pressure. You know, well, hey, listen, I had zero background in real estate development. I had, you know, a, a, a little bit of background in politics, but I think I was, what, 32 years old. I was a young guy and I didn't certainly have background in finance. I did not have background in real estate development and uh, in all the political maneuvering that would be necessary. The other thing that Paul told us at the and 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 so really, I you know how can I not um, think back to how amazing it was for him to show confidence in me? He saw something in me that he thought this is a guy who can play a leadership role and get it done and. I worked very hard um, to make that happen. Um, The other thing Paul was very clear on the very first meeting was there was a precise amount of capital that he was prepared to bring to the table. Uh, That amount of money was exactly $46 million. And uh, I know that may seem like a large sum of money, which at the time it certainly was. But ultimately, we had a $262 million project on our hands. And Paul made it very clear that he was not prepared to execute any personal guarantees on any loans. And he made it very clear that he was not prepared to utilize the Trailblazers Basketball Club as collateral. So this was my uh, rapid uh, education in you know in in finance, and so the first thing I did was to hire some of the smartest people in the country. First, a guy named Sam Katz, who was a uh, principal at Public Financial Management based in Philadelphia. Katz, by the way, just a quick side story, went on to run for governor of Pennsylvania and mayor of Philadelphia two times. He lost all three of those races. But he was a brilliant finance guy. He was introduced to us by Jerry Colangelo. 
Um, and so we brought him to the table. We ultimately also brought in a guy named Aaron Barman from Prudential Securities, who was based in New York, uh, to advise us. And then I also had the pleasure of working with Paul Allen's personal attorney, a guy named Alan Israel, uh, with Foster Pepper out of Seattle. I assume that Alan's still involved with them. Um, and so we put together a team and we brought in other experts along the way. And I think I hired a lot of smart people around me. But we had a big challenge. We had to figure out how to raise capital without going back to Paul and asking him to guarantee anything. And this became a huge issue with the city of Portland as well, because they wanted all kinds of guarantees that we were not prepared to bring to the table because these were the ground rules that Paul laid down. And Paul was very wise, by the way. That's in no way criticizing Paul. He was smart not to, uh, you know, to put his own pallet sheet on the line. So ultimately, we were able to do that by raising $155 million through uh, a consortium of institutional investors, meaning not banks, but pension funds and um, other form kinds of institutions. Uh, and so that we pieced that together. And the only way that we could make that happen was to, one, get investment grade ratings, which we achieved not only from Fitch, but also from Standard & Poor's. We got the first investment grade rating for a sports venue in Standard & Poor's history. Uh, we had to work very hard with a independent consulting firm to convince them that our economic forecasts were viable. But ultimately, before the loan proceeds uh, were, uh, were actually uh, deposited, uh, and therefore, before construction could start, we had to um, generate contractually obligated income uh, at a ratio of $1.5 for every $1 of debt service. That had to be done starting two years in advance of construction. What that means, Brian, is we had to sell suites, club seats, sponsorships and other deals that were contractually obligated on a multi-year basis. That was unprecedented in this business and we got it done. And, um, uh, that led to, uh, uh, probably my proudest achievement really in business. And very few people would know this, but we were named deal of the year by institutional investor magazine. <laughs> so I remember I that. Very proud of that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's a perception that Paul just wrote a check, but Paul did not write a check. He wrote a sizable check for $46 million. And ultimately, he did sign one form of guarantee with the city, which was fantastic. And uh, I think says a lot about um, uh, who he really is, and that, or who he was, I should say, unfortunately. Um, Paul did agree to something called the Exclusive Site Agreement, which the city of Portland and their uh, team insisted on. And this was an agreement that guaranteed that under any certain, under no circumstances could Paul move the Portland Trailblazers during the term of the deal with the city, which was 30 years, which, by the way, is coming up here uh, in about a year. Um, and so... Um, that meant that even if Paul had sold the club, the the successor 
ownership. There was no way. There was a lot of teeth behind that agreement. There was no way the Blazers could be moved. And, of course, from my point of view, uh, being the son of the founder of the club, I was very happy to concede that point to the city. Uh, Paul was uh, not at all reluctant either, and that said a lot about how much he cared about this community. So, Marshall, before we get too into the weeds on on some of this stuff, explain to our audience, it's kind of complicated, and only someone like you knows this information, but the city owns a certain amount of the Rose Quarter and its property. Paul Allen, and now as a state, I guess, own a certain amount of either property or the building. Explain how that breaks down. Uh, the Coliseum, <coughs> or excuse me, the, the, the Moda Center today, sits on property that, first of all, Williams Avenue ran right down the center of where the Coliseum is. So we had to get the city to actually shut down that part of Williams Avenue and reroute it uh, along parallel of the freeway to the I-5 freeway. Uh, there was a small, where we wanted to put the footprint of the building, there was a very small piece of property that was known as the Hanna. Uh, it was owned by the Hanna family. And that small piece of property we actually acquired um, through a vehicle of Paul Allen's. Um, the one center court building where the Blazers' offices are and where Dr. Jack's is, the plaza, the fountain, uh, the area in front of Memorial Coliseum, and all the ground where the parking garages are, and the all, you know, 90% of the footprint of the Moda Center, all of that land is City of Portland land. And it still is City of Portland land. So we entered into a series of very complex ground leases with the city of Portland. And in addition to that, as you remember, the city insisted that the Coliseum uh, would not be uh, eliminated. Uh, and they wanted to get, you know, they wanted it to continue to operate. And that initially we thought really could be a deal breaker because, as you know, typically the old arena would go after the new arena is built. Uh, but in this case, we decided to compromise and ultimately told the city, as long as we control the operation so that we can assure our lenders that we had, you know, didn't have competition for, for, for concerts and other things, you know, right next door, um, that we could work that out. So we ended up signing also an operating agreement with the city to run Memorial Coliseum. Uh, as well, you know, in tandem uh, with the Moda Center. And I think that's actually worked out, you know, pretty well over time. But that's a very unusual situation. You don't see that in uh, other cities. Um, so there's a series of ground leases. After we got moving with the project and all the agreements were signed with the city, and this was, you know, going to be a done deal, um, I explained to Paul that we perhaps ought to take advantage of the long-term future increase in property values on private properties adjacent to the Rose Quarter. Uh, and he agreed, and so we actually formed, I think it was six or seven different shell companies with funny names because we did not want sellers to know who the buyer was because then the price would have, you know, gone up through the roof just based on the perception of, you know, Paul's wealth. 
So we formed several companies, and ultimately we bought some small parcels owned by the railroad uh, around the grain elevators, and then we bought the Red Lion Hotel, which now is, as you know, that's been raised, but that's that nice piece of property that most people are aware of along the river. Uh, we did not buy, we made offers, but did not buy certain other properties. And then I was within a hair of closing a deal to buy the grain elevator. And that's the one thing I really regret because, uh, it was a very complex deal. We actually had the deal made and I shook hands <coughs> with, uh, Robert Lewis Dreyfus, who by the way, is the father of Julia Louise Dreyfus, um, and uh, their office was in the Chrysler building in New York. And I shook hands with him and told him that this deal is subject to Paul uh, to Paul's approval, uh, which was understood. Um, Paul ultimately did not approve the deal. Now, he had very good reasons because the cost of that property far exceeded the intrinsic real estate value. Uh, the problem was you had a working grain elevator, uh, and that thing was a cash cow for Dreyfus. So their only, the only way that they would sell us the property is if we paid enough money so they could build a new grain elevator downriver, uh, so that it would be, you know, you know, from a capital point of view, it would be a neutral transaction and upside on the real estate. And, you know, Paul just wasn't willing to pay the price. And uh, and that's understandable. That's a reasonable business decision. So, but, you know, I do regret it in the sense that if that grain elevator wasn't there, can you imagine, you know, the views that that opens up and the opportunity to redevelop that section of the river, uh, which was what we always intended to do, uh, was amazing. And one more thing about the real estate. We wanted the right to develop the properties owned by the city. So we spent a lot of time with the city negotiating long-term development rights, um, you know, so that we had exclusive rights to develop those properties, uh, you know, with some, there were some carve-outs and some exceptions. It was complicated, but ultimately we secured the air rights over the public parking garages, uh, the rights, uh, of the land, the property behind the one center court building, et cetera. Um, unfortunately, after I left, uh, I, you know, I don't know what happened, Brian, but nobody, nobody moved. I, you know, I just didn't think, I don't think they had real estate development kind of mentality inside the club. And, you know, that's fine. They were there to run the business of basketball. But as you know, and is well known in Portland, nothing's happened there after all those years. And that's a great disappointment because we always had the vision uh, to develop uh, the Rose Quarter at, at, at great density. Uh, and we had really a, a great vision for it. And unfortunately, they let those development rights expire. Now, there's new efforts. and That's all good. And hopefully something will ultimately uh, materialize, but the Blazers no longer have those development rights that we negotiated so hard for back in the uh, uh, early 90s. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., 
Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. Marshall, I want to move on and talk about a number of little nuggets slash stories about Paul Allen. Um, and again, since you work closely with him and we're kind of in that inside circle, uh, I want to run some of these things by you. First of all, you had some interesting interactions with him personally, some of which you've already described. But I know there was a specific meeting with Panasonic in 1994 that you guys had. Tell us about that meeting and why it was unique. So the Blazers <clears throat> played two regular season games, actually the first two games of the season, in Yokohama, Japan in 94. The NBA, I think, had launched the Japanese games the year prior, so I think we were the second second group of clubs to go over. I forgot now who we played. It might have been the Clippers. So we went on that trip, and at the same time, we arranged a meeting with Matsushita, which is the parent company of Panasonic, and they're somewhere outside of Tokyo. And I asked Paul Allen if he would participate in this meeting because, after all, Paul Allen is Paul Allen and Matsushita is Matsushita. And so there was a lot of interest in potentially, uh, you know, finding uh, synergies uh, there. Our interest in Portland specifically was to make a wide-ranging deal with Matsushita for video screens and television production um, uh, hardware because we were building out studios and all kinds of uh, production uh, capabilities were needed. And so Paul agreed to that meeting. So we take a limousine out to Matsushita, and as we were driving, we passed a McDonald's. And Paul asked the driver to pull over because Paul liked McDonald's. And so uh, we, uh, uh, Paul and uh, Bert Cold was with us. Uh, we all we all had Big Macs in the back of the limousine. And then we uh, proceeded to Matsushita. So we pull up in front of this sprawling. You know, headquarters, this is a really big Japanese consumer and non-consumer electronics company. And literally, when the door opened, the limousine door opened, there was a red carpet laid out, a long red carpet, probably, you know, 30 yards uh, from the door of the limousine to the entrance of Matsushita's headquarters. 
And on each side of the red carpet, there were these uh, Matsushita employees. And they were, you know, giving Paul Allen a standing ovation. And it was just, you know, it was it was mind-boggling, uh, just the, the feeling. But also it, it reminded me then, and it reminds me today, you know, how Paul Allen changed the world. I don't think we understood that as well back in the uh, early 90s, but the people at Matsushita did. They understood his contribution to computing and all of that. And so we went into the meeting in a Japanese business environment. It's a very formal situation. We sat around a huge table, and there's a long get-to-know-you period that has to happen before you can speak about business. So the first thing that happened is they brought us some of the most beautiful bento boxes I could imagine. Oh, my Lord, these were beautiful. But when Paul's, you know, you can imagine what's in it, right? A lot of raw fish and interesting uh, edibles. And uh, I'm I'm a, a kind of a foodie, so I'm an adventurous eater. But Paul was less adventurous, so he kind of... He kind of, he kind of, they set the bento box in front of him. He kind of, you know, pushed to the side. It was, you know, I don't think he understood that, you know, from a cultural point of view, it would have been better to eat the raw fish. But anyway, it, it was fine, but it was just amusing to me. And I remember the story, Paul preferred McDonald's. That's funny. So the other story that I wanted to ask you about is when you would go visit Vulcan, which is headquartered in Seattle to go see Paul, there were some crates in the lobby. Tell us about the crates. Well, we were going up to Seattle pretty frequently at one point. Myself, Bob Collier, sometimes Jay Isaac, <clears throat> Paul Zumwalt. We were going there uh, because Paul and his sister Jody uh, were quite hands-on with some of the big design decisions that got made over the course of you know, really designing the the rose garden down right down to you know selecting the carpet, uh, you know, or the furnishings. And so we were going up there on a regular basis. And at the time, Vulcan's offices were still in Bellevue, and so we're there and we're in the lobby and we're waiting. And I began to notice that there were crates, big wood crates that were stacked up in the lobby of Vulcan. And one day I was up there, and one of the crates had been opened. And so the top of the wood crate was ajar. And so, you know, being a curious person, I thought I would just sort of peek inside. And I did. And lo and behold, there is a leather hat. Almost, it was, it was unbelievable. And, I, and so I literally, I picked it up. I looked in this leather hat, and on the inside, there was a stain around the rim of the hat. Of course, what do you think? It was one of Jimi Hendrix's leather hats that Jimi, uh, you know, wore, and I'm sure there were hundreds of them over over his his career. So this was the time that Paul began to collect literally every piece of musical equipment, instruments. He acquired the entire Electric Ladyland studio. It was unbelievable. 
And, you know, I'm a music junkie. Uh, and I grew up working in record stores in Portland at Millennium and, and, and Long Hair Music. And, and it just, that was something I really related to him uh, on because we both had this real passion. Paul, perhaps more than anybody in the world, because he was also a really good musician. So I just thought it was so cool. I mean, this guy is literally buying up all the paraphernalia ever owned by Jimi Hendrix. That was cool. So Paul Allen had a band called Paul Allen and the Underthinkers. They put out an album. You know, I, I know you and, and I saw him play at, you know, some private events. And he seemed to have such a passion when he was on stage with his band. He he wasn't a nerd anymore. He was a, a rock star like he always wanted to be. And it was interesting to me, Marshall, that Quincy Jones, the famed producer, was interviewed in the last year. And they said, who's an underrated musical artist out there that we wouldn't think of? And he said, Paul Allen, like, kills it on the guitar. And even yesterday, when Quincy Jones tweeted out condolences about Paul Allen, you know, he mentioned his guitar playing prowess so Quincy Jones is one of the best producers who's ever lived and if he's paying Paul Allen that kind of a compliment that's got to be a nice feather in his cap I have heard over the years that Paul Allen is definitely a respected musician uh, I only saw him play I think once but you know Quincy's from Seattle people forget that and you know the original museum was going to be the Jimi Hendrix Museum which is we all know evolved into the Experience Music Project, uh, which was, you know, in and of itself, uh, just an amazing, an amazing uh, deal. I mean, the first time I walked in there, it just blew me away, and it still blows me away. Uh, and so when it evolved into something beyond Jimmy, it got heavily into really Northwest and, and Seattle, and even Portland-based musicians. And so Quincy, Ernestine Anderson, great jazz singer, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, you know, the Kingsman, and, you know, right up, you know, Hendrix, of course, and, you know, right, you know, right on through, uh, you know, Sonic Youth, all these great bands that have come out of Seattle and, and Portland over the years, including Quarter Flash and New Shoes. And, you know, he, he created this amazing sense of place. So Paul is a, listen, when we, um, <clears throat> we actually took over, um, the operation of the Coliseum a year before the Rose Garden opened. So the Blaze, it was the last year the Blazers playing in the Coliseum while construction was happening next door. And we brought the Eagles, who had just done a, you know, they were just, re, you know, they were going to tour again for the first time in years. We brought the Eagles to the Coliseum and I'm a big Eagles fan, and as it turns out, so too is Paul. And so we um, that was the only time I remember where I exercised my executive privilege, Brian, and I got front row seats. You know, I wanted to sit right in front of Joe Walsh and Don Henley and, and these great musicians. And so uh, sitting next to me was Paul. And right on on his other side was a guy named David Liddell, who I don't know a lot about, but in the tech industry, David Liddell is huge, really important guy. And I remember Paul said to me, I think it might have been during the concert or maybe there was an intermission, but he said, I really want to go, you know, meet these guys. And we made 
that happen. Uh, we went and talked to the promoter that Paul Allen would like to come back, and they invited him into the dressing room. I believe it was right after the concert. And that's another great regret I have. Of course, I should have tagged along. Yes. I could have sort of snuck in there with Paul riding his coattails. But instead, I tried to be, you know, Mr. Humble, and I stayed behind. And I regret it to this day. You know, I should have gone to meet the Eagles. But uh, Paul was so, he was like, you know, he was like, a, he was like a kid. You know, I, you know, I'm Paul Allen, so I have access to this. And, but, but his desire just to shake hands with these guys, you know, and to talk to them was, you know, it was like, you know, how, you know, how we're all in, we all have musical heroes. And certainly uh, he did. He had a lot of musical heroes. And for him to meet guys like Joe Walsh, oh my gosh, it was, it was a great moment. Well, and the thing, that's one of the things about Paul is that he was a visionary and he could be very serious and he could challenge you in those meetings like you described earlier, but he was also a kid. He was a passionate hoops junkie. He loved football. He loved music. You know, some of his other interests, Marshall, that I look at and I think we may not know for 10, 20 years if these things that he started will turn into life-changing things. And I mentioned them, the Brain Institute, the space and deep sea exploration that he's done. I mean, what if we send a private rocket into space that he's developed? What if the Brain Institute finds mapping of the brain and, and can cure Parkinson's? He started so many things that have nothing to do with sports that are so important to the world. And I think sometimes the sports fan just sees him as the owner of the Blazers and Seahawks, but he was so much more than that. He was fascinating, fascinating guy. Anything to do with science, anything to do with future. He was a dreamer. Uh, and he, I think he spent most of his life trying to uh, see some of those dreams, you know, manifest themselves in a, in a, you know, in a real way. I love the fact that he grew up as a kid watching Star Trek, you know, Captain Kirk, man, you know, and then he ended up buying all that stuff, you know, that's in the museum, which is now the pop culture museum, right? You know, it's evolved even further. So, yeah, Paul Paul was just a fascinating guy. The diversity of his interests were amazing. I wasn't around when he later, um, you know, got involved with DreamWorks. But, you know, I'm sure he made that investment both for business reasons, but also so he could be around that culture, right? You right. Know, the, pol- the culture of the pop music business and, and Hollywood and all that. Uh, it was it was fascinating. Um, oh, I'll tell. I want. I got one more story for you. If you got a second. Oh yeah, this is great. So people might not remember, but Paul Allen actually acquired Ticketmaster. Right. I believe. It, I believe it was either ninety three or ninety four. And so I get a call one day from Bert Kolb asking me to go to Los Angeles, and this is before the acquisition closed, to do due diligence on their behalf, which meant reading all of Ticketmaster's contracts with venues and promoters across the United States. That does not sound (laughs) fun. You know, right? Yeah, that's a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading, and the way this works is, you know, they don't make copies of these contracts and send them off. In the due diligence, you have the right to, uh, 
you know, send somebody to go into a room and sit in the room, and I was allowed to take notes, but not to copy anything. So I show up uh, in L.A. Their offices were on Wilshire Boulevard, and, you know, Fred Rosen was an infamous, infamous person, you know, a difficult person, but a legend in, in the business, the, the really the, the, the founder of Ticketmaster, the guy who created the idea of, you know, of people actually paying for the privilege of paying for tickets. That's what he did. He changed the model. He turned it upside down. <laughs> we call those convenience fees today, right? Mm-hmm. So... You know, it used to cost money to issue a ticket, and then he realized we can turn this into a profit center. So I go down there, and I walk into the downstairs lobby to get on the elevator, and lo and behold, who's walking in but Fred Rosen, who I didn't know well, but I had met a couple times. And we get on the elevator, and I said, Hi, Fred, I'm Marshall Glickman, and I'm here to, uh, on, on behalf of Paul Allen, to, you know, to, to review, you know, the contracts. So the bottom line is, 30 minutes later, they threw my ass out of the, <laughs> out of the building. <laughs> they, told, they, they told me there's no way. There's no way you're going to review any of our contracts. You know, Fred was infamous for keeping the terms of his agreements to himself. He didn't even share with his own employees. And he didn't want, you know, one venue to know what the other venue's deal was, right? So I proceeded to take a taxi back to LAX. And, you know, I think at the time I had a mobile phone, you know, the brick. Right. So I used my, br- I used my brick and I called Bert and I said, Bert, they sent me away. <laughs> and so he said, okay, fly home. So I go back to Portland and two days later they sent me back to L.A. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and I did my job. But, you know, Paul bought Ticketmaster and I think his intention was to turn it into the awesome software company that it is today. I mean, but that's how far Paul was ahead of the curve, right? He, th- what Ticketmaster is today was his vision for Ticketmaster back in the early 90s. Well, and now, how about this, out, Marshall, to the Starwave? You worked on that, and Starwave is now ESPN.com. So he did have a vision with those things, and he, he just saw he things years in advance. He did, and, you know, in some ways, perhaps, you know, he was ahead, uh, you know, a little too far ahead of the curve sometimes. You know, his timing wasn't always impeccable, right? But but his vision was amazing. And you're right. Star Wave is a great example. Mike Slade, who's a Portland kid, went to Catlin Gable here. I think he's still a member of the Mac Club. Uh, Mike uh, ran that for him, and they were interested in, as one of their very first projects, in creating ESPN.com. So uh, and NBA.com. So NBA.com, I think, preceded ESPN. And so I knew all the NBA people well, and so I put uh, all of them together. And it's so interesting because when I was at the NBA, I was running the broadcasting division, and then I moved to NBA properties. And so we had to replace me on the broadcasting side, and we recruited a guy named John Kozner who went on to become the head of digital for all of ESPN, where he was for many years. But I put Kozner together with Mike Slade, and, you know, the rest is history. They created NBA.com and then ESPN.com and, and, you know, on and on. So, yeah, I mean, he was, 
you know, who I, I am completely dependent, dependent, uh, you know, on ESPN.com as well as Bleacher Report today, right? That's where I get all my sports news of the day. It's amazing. So before I let you go, I want to ask you uh, a few things about what's next, because I think a lot of people are wondering what's next. And I want to start with Paul's sister, Jody. You spent some time with Jody. Again, you were in that inner circle. A lot of people don't know her very well. Describe Jody to our audience, because I think a lot of people are wondering, and, you know, anything we discuss right now is pure speculation because we haven't seen Paul's will or anything like that. But a lot of people are wondering, who is this mystery sister of Paul Allen's? Well, she's not a mystery. Jody's been coming to Blazer games for 30 years. And uh, back in the day, uh, when Paul's mom was alive, Faye, who was a wonderful, wonderful woman, uh, they would all come together. They flew down on the plane, and they all came to games together. So she's been around. At one point, Jody was really into choreography. And at one point, she kind of took the lead on the Blazer dance team, believe it or not. Oh, my God. So she's, yeah, so she's always been around. I don't know anything, Brian, about what's going to happen. I mean, the thing is, Paul, you know, he doesn't have kids. Uh, he doesn't, he's not married. He wasn't married. Uh, so he's he's got a sister. Um, I don't have a clue what their estate plans look like. It's easy to speculate that, you know, that they'll inevitably sell the club. I think that's certainly a possibility, but I think there's another possibility that the the estate will hold on to it. And, uh, and you know, the, I, I don't know what the kind of the governance uh, model looks like within Paul's, uh, you know, estate plans. As you know, I believe Bert Cold, who's really been Paul's right-hand guy for the, you know, from, from ever, from the, for 30 years or longer since I've known uh, them, uh, I believe they were college roommates. Exactly, and I think Bert already represents uh, the Blazers uh, and and the Seahawks and you know Board of Governors and things like that. So I don't know. I think it's uh, I think it's uh, way too early to kind of speculate. The one thing I would say is, um, you know, even if they sell the club, I cannot imagine any scenario where the Portland Trailblazers uh, moved. Uh, I know that the ground leases are coming up shortly. I'm sure, I'm, I'm assuming, I should say, that uh, that they're negotiating uh, extensions. Uh, the fact is, because I negotiated the original agreements, that the Blazers have an option to uh, to extend so that on, on, the, on the existing terms. Perhaps they're trying to renegotiate some terms. But the fact is, no matter what, even if they did sell to some owner who lives somewhere else, relocating a club requires the approval of the Board of Governors. And a lot of people say, yeah, but what about Seattle moving to Oak City? But that was a completely different situation. They had exhausted all efforts to get a new arena project done in Seattle at that time. And, you know, David Stern was hands-on and personally involved, and they just couldn't get anything done. So that's a different circumstance. That's not the circumstance we have here. We have a a team here that's been supported fantastically uh, over, you know, what, 40 years. And, uh, um, you know, so I I can't see any scenario whereby the 
the owners of the NBA would approve a relocation from this market. So I don't think anybody at the city of Portland, any government official or any fan should be concerned whatsoever about that. But the thing you do know as well as I do, and I agree with you, I don't think the Blazers are going anywhere. Um, When these things happen, leagues like the NFL with the Seahawks and the NBA with the Blazers, they've already vetted prospective owners. There are minority owners of other teams who have said, hey, if a team ever becomes available, I want to be on the short list to have my own team. The NBA and the NFL have a sense of who's out there and who's interested, and others may emerge, but it's not like this becomes a bidding war with anyone and everyone. The leagues are pretty select in who they want to own their teams, right? Yes, but at the end of the day, the league doesn't get to decide. um, Well, look, the ownership has to be approved, but the approval is based on normal you know, background checks to make sure these are honorable people and that they really, that they have the uh, the base, uh, the, the economic basis to own an NBA team. Um, they're not going to, uh, you know, they will try to, they may try to influence a sale, but the fact is it's going to get sold to the people who are willing to pay the most amount of money. Now, if all things were equal, wouldn't it be fantastic if some Portland people, you know, sort of emerged? And a lot of people go, oh, that's impossible. Phil Knight's the only guy that has the money. But, you know, teams aren't owned by one person. You know, that that model is pretty much gone. I mean, usually there's a lot of limited partners that are behind one or two people who might be more the face of the club and they might have the, you know, a majority interest. But a majority interest these days could mean 10 or 20 percent. So I think, um, yes, you are absolutely right what you said. I mean, Adam Silver knows who wants to buy NBA teams. That's for sure. But that doesn't mean that other groups won't emerge. And at the end of the day, I think it's based on, uh, you know, who will pay the highest amount of money, I think, is the number one criteria. The number two criteria is who are they and what do they bring to the table. And, I'm, you know, that matters. No doubt they want to have owners that bring something to the table, you know, intellectually. Uh, and that's terrific. And, and we should be open to that. You know, there's a lot of upstarts. There's a lot of new wealth here. I hope at the end of the day, no matter what happens, that we have some local ownership who care about this community. Marshall, closing thoughts on Paul Allen. Well, I can only speak personally. It's been a very long time, okay? You know, I've only seen him once or twice since the days that I worked for him, and that was a very long time ago, so it was another era. Uh, But as I reflect back, you know, what an amazing opportunity for a young person to be able to be around somebody who literally, really, think about the influence that he and Bill Gates have had on the way we live, the way we work, the way we process things, the way we get information. It's incredible. And I think back, um, uh, I look back at the pictures of him and Gates. I'm sure we've all been looking at these pictures. Oh my gosh, they were kids. Right. They were kids. It just blows me away i think i have an 18 year old son they were like that age yeah in their garage oh my god and you know so the fact that you know he 
that, you know, he's influenced thousands and thousands of people who've worked with him and know him. But I happen to be one of those thousands for a brief window of time. But the impact that that brief window of time had on me and my career uh, is is I can't uh, overstate how uh, how much gratitude I have that he showed confidence in me all the way back in 88 when he pointed his finger at me and said, you're in charge you know, of this, you make it happen. Uh, you know, and one last thing, when he bought the club, uh, he immediately bought every employee of the club a compact 286 computer. Can you imagine the processing speed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, used to, I used to go down to Palm Springs when I realized I could get email uh, over a phone, and it would take something like two and a half hours to download my emails. <laughs> oh my God! Right? Yeah. I'm serious. And but 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 what that did in terms of how we work and how we communicate? Wow! So an incredible visionary in many ways ahead of his time, and it's very sad to lose somebody at such a young age. And may he rest in peace. Marshall Glickman, the founder and CEO of G2 Strategic. Find them online at g2strategic.net. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us on Sports Business Radio to reflect on the life and legacy of Paul Allen. Great, Brian. It was fun. Thanks. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Bringing you the biggest names in sports business. Without further ado, we all know this gentleman. Let's give David Stern a big round of applause. Let's welcome the president of the NCAA, Mark Emmert. Give him a hand. Let's give a big hand to USC alum and co-owner of the Lakers and president of the Lakers, Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. Thank you so, so much for having me, Brian. It was very, very kind, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Sir Charles, how are you? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing this morning? Today's guest is Memphis Grizzlies head coach David Fisdale. You're the man, Barrett. My guest is tennis icon Chris Everett. It was very interesting. You asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian. Pleased to welcome to the show Kyrie Irving, the number one pick in the 2011 NBA draft. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be joined by Pete Carroll, the executive VP of football operations and the head football coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Coach, how are you? Doing good. What's going on? Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Just a quick story about my interview with Paul Allen. Coming into that interview, there were rumors that Paul Allen was going to buy a European soccer club. And the European soccer club was actually publicly traded. Griggs, we did the interview. And Paul Allen said during the interview that he had no interest in buying the soccer club. He was already going to 100 games a year between Blazers and Seahawks. Literally after the interview ran, the price of the stock plummeted. So I can say that is the one and only time in the history of Sports Business Radio since 2004 that we have actually impacted a stock price on this show. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our sports business radio roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. And thanks again to our new partner, the Robinhood app. 
Robinhood is giving our listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at sbradio.robinhood.com. That's sbradio.robinhood.com. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.